Thank you for listening to the Celebration Church podcast. For more information about Celebration Church, go to ccacron.org. There you will find information about our church, upcoming events, and how to make a contribution to the ministry of Celebration Church. We hope this message is an encouragement to you. Comforters come. Well, hopefully you have your notes. If you don't have your notes from last week, you can raise your hand. Pastor Bill has some, and uh, he'll make sure you get a copy of them. And I'm going to fly through these things tonight. So we have a lot of notes to go through. Praise the Lord. The Comforter has come. The Comforter has come. He wants to fill you. He wants to saturate you. (laughs) This wasn't just an experience for 1906 and it's over. (laughs) It's today. He wants to fill you today. Why are we studying the revivals and the history of revivals? Because God's not done. He didn't do something in 1906 or 1904 or 1800. He didn't just do it for then, 1700. He's doing it today. He wants to do a new work today. He wants to do a fresh work now in our lives. Amen. And God didn't, you know, Heather said this a couple weeks ago, and then I reiterated, and I'll reiterate it again. I don't believe God brought us here for just a small little church on, on Dan Street, not to, not to poke fun or, or to say anything negative about that. But I think God brought us here to see a region transformed by the glory of God, to see revival, see an awakening affect this region. And you're a part of that. It's not just, you know, we can stand up here and preach and teach and plow the ground and prepare the way and and lay the foundation. But if you don't get it and you don't carry it out, we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Revival's personal. As much as it is corporate, it is personal. An awakening is corporate, but just as much as it is corporate, it's personal. And if, if you don't have an awakening, if it's not personal for you, it won't touch this region. It took, it took people like, like Evan Roberts, like Flory Evans. It took people like Agnes Osmond. It took people like William Seymour who would say, God, it's not just words on a page in the Bible. It's personal for me, and I want to make it personal for me. I want a personal encounter with you. And God began to light the fires of revival in their heart. He began to awaken their heart to their first love. And out of that, they went out. And not only were regions affected, whole countries were turned on their ear because of their ministries. And so that's why we're taking a look. I pray that through this study, for those that uh, are listening via the podcast or those that listen here live with us in services, I pray that somehow the words and the history and the teaching that we go through will ignite in you a passion and a fire for revival and awakening in this area. That it's not, just, it's not just something we teach and we preach. It becomes something that each of us live on a daily basis. Amen. There is a price to pay for revival. There is a price to pay to live in an awakening. And it means the death of yourself. The, the cost of that is absolutely the death of yourself. You have to be willing to lay aside your dreams, your wants, your desires, you have to lay aside your ego. You have to lay aside your reputation, your wants, your desires, and say, Lord, whatever you want, I'm available. Whatever you want, Lord, I want personal. I want the reality of the gospel in my life. And that, that's, that's a lot. 
Not everybody's willing to do that. Not everybody's willing to do that. They would rather you can build, listen to what I'm saying, you can build a successful kingdom and you can have the crowds. You can have the crowds, you can build your successful kingdom. But how many of the crowd were present on the day of Pentecost? How many of the crowd went to Jesus at the cross? How many of the crowd, how many of the crowd followed into the New Testament? Y'all hear what I'm saying? Crowds are great. We all love a crowd. <laughs> and, but that's not what revival's about. That's not what awakening's about. It's not about the crowd. It's about a personal experience with God that transforms lives, transforms your life, and sees someone else around you and see this world around you transform. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Smith Wigglesworth in 1947 gave this prophecy that follows. During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it, and it will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidence in the churches something has not been seen before. A coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. And when the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's spirit will flow over from the UK to the mainland of Europe and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. I believe that. I believe that we're seeing that joining. There, there, is a, there is a stirring even now among certain folks of this joining of the Spirit and the Word that there is, there is the emphasis with both and not just one or the other. So we concluded a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the 19th century leading up and establishing the stage for what was to take place at the turn of the century. We talked about the holiness movement and how the ground was laid during the holiness movement for what was coming. And at the turn of the century, 1900, there, is, there are spontaneous revivals and things that are taking a place across North America. You have Different, different things happening all across the country. There's little bubblings taking place. There was a sense that something was coming at the turn of the century, spiritually speaking. There was a sense that something was stirring. God was about ready to do something incredible in the church, but nobody could quite put their finger on it. And in the middle of all of this, we have to set the, the groundwork with understanding the Welsh revival that was taking place in Wales at the same time. So you can kind of get the full scope of everything that was happening. So let's pause on North America for a second and jump across the big lake to Wales and talk about what God was doing in Wales. So in 1904, we run into this young lady by the name of Flory Evans. Now I'm going to do my best to give you all these notes 
and uh, we'll, we'll walk through that. But her picture's on the screen. Flory Evans was a young lady, and in, in the middle of a service, she is known for, she stood up and said, if no one else will testify, I will. And she says, I love Jesus with all of my heart. That's all she did. But it sparked a flame, it sparked a fire in people's hearts for what was to come. Then enter to the scene this young man by the name of Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was 26 years old at the time of the Welsh Revival. He was a theology major student. He grew up in a coal mining family. He worked the coal mines with his dad. And his popularity in history, some say, grew even more than the Welsh rugby team at the time. And they were actually the best in the world or close to that at the time. So that's a pretty big deal. He had a, a wide, uh, wide fame. It is said that thousands of the converts in the Welsh revival died in World War I ten years later. Evan Roberts prayed for 11 years for revival. Now, I want to give you some of these quotes and some of the history. There's just a lot of information out there on Evan Roberts and the Welsh revival. It's hard to just sum it all up. You, you really just need to go and study it. It's awesome. Welsh revival is one of my favorite revivals in history. And so here's a couple of quotes for you. I could sit up. This is Evan Roberts. I could sit up all night to read or talk about revivals. It was the spirit that moved me to think about revival. For a long time, a long, long time, I was much troubled in my soul and my heart by thinking over the failure of Christianity. But one night, after I had been in great distress praying about this, I went to sleep, and at one o'clock in the morning, suddenly I was waked up out of my sleep, and I found myself with unspeakable joy and awe in the very presence of the Almighty God. And for the space of four hours, I was privileged to speak face-to-face -face with Him as a man speaks face-to-face -face with a friend." At five o'clock, it seemed to me as if again I returned to earth, and it was not only that morning, but every morning for three or four months I felt it, and it seemed to change all my nature. I saw things in a different light, and I knew that God was going to work in the land, and not only this land, but in all the world. On Thursday, September 22nd, Roberts attended a meeting with W. w. Lewis and Seth Joshua, and that those are important names if you're studying this to come back to, but... They were of the Calvinistic Methodist forward movement. The, in the morning meeting, Roberts goes in and Seth Joshua prays this prayer. Seth Joshua prays a simple prayer, Lord, bend us. And as he prayed that prayer, the Holy Spirit began to deal with Evan Roberts about this word, bend us. That was the 7 a.m. meeting. They came back for the 9 a.m. meeting. And all that Evan Roberts could pray, all that he could get out of his mouth was, Lord, bend us. Bend me. Bend me, Lord. Bend me. Bend us. That was his prayer. That became his heart cry. And he said that he could feel the Lord bending him and working in him. And then he became, all of a sudden, he became aware of those who would bend at the judgment seat, who had not repented of their sin, who had not been converted, and they would have to bend at the judgment seat. And so his heart was lit on fire for souls from that moment forward. He talks about as a result or during this time frame that he had a vision of a, of a hand and an arm writing on a piece of paper. And when he went to look at the piece of paper, he saw the number 100,000 written on it. And, and he began to pray and wrestle over that. Lord, what does that mean? What are you saying? And he felt the Lord speak to him and said, I'm going to save 100,000 100,000 souls across Wales. And we're talking about meetings. And then, so he goes on, on October 30th, 
He's been stirred. The Lord's dealing with him. The Lord speaks to him on October 30th to go back home. He writes his friend, Flory Evans. Remember that name? He writes her, tells her of his plans. He talks to his minister and says, look, the Lord's dealing with me about revival. The Lord's dealing with me about souls. And so he asks if he can share. And, the, and basically his minister said, go for it. It's hard, stony ground. Their hearts are hardened. Good luck. <laughs> and so Evan Roberts calls together all of the young people. And he says, I want to talk to you about your spiritual condition, basically. And he begins to preach to them and teach to them. And all 17 that night made decisions for Christ. They found their way to Christ, including Evan Roberts' brother and his three sisters. The following evening, Roberts spoke to a larger audience at the chapel in Pisgah. And then his home congregation of Moriah was a chapel. It was like a satellite. Several of them were... They were in the meeting where the 17 got born again, were there that night, and the meeting lasted for three hours. <laughs> and it was characterized not by great messages or preaching or oratory, but it was characterized by confession, prayer, and personal testimony. The meeting last night, this was a quote of it, the meeting last night was left entirely to the Spirit's direction. Reflecting on it, I realized that the Spirit was teaching obedience. That was from Roberts. On Sunday evening, the meeting proved to be a turning point. There was a second round of prayer, each praying in turn for the Holy Spirit to come more powerfully. Two women were filled with the Holy Spirit and unable to contain themselves, began shouting out loudly. And people started shouting, no more, Lord Jesus, or I die. <laughs> they were so overcome by the presence of the Lord that they started yelling out, enough, enough, I can't take anymore. And others cried for mercy and wept, saying and praised God. This together with the sight of many who had fainted or who had laid prostrate on the ground in agony of conviction. It was unbelievable and unprecedented. So all this is going on. November 9th rolls around. Roberts preaches at the Congregational Chapel. That meeting lasted eight hours. <laughs> you know, all these churches are incredible. And it wasn't preaching or some, some great message. It was confession. It was prayer. It was testimonies. The power of God was touching people. People were falling on the floor. There was joy. There was people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's, that was what was happening in these meetings. And as they intensified, as word got out about these meetings, they would become so full. History says that the meeting places were slammed packed, jam-packed with people, and they were literally having to throw people. They were crowd surfing. They were having to throw them on top of people to get them in the building, if you wanted to get in the building. And then Evan Roberts had so much fame, him and his, his traveling sisters that sang for him, they, they got so much fame, Evan Roberts didn't want it to be about him, and so he would not announce where he was going to be speaking, and so he, if they knew he was passing through, the church would be slammed full with people again. But he might not even show up. He may go across town to another church so that it wasn't about him. And uh, some of the history accounts talk about Evan Roberts not even getting into the building till an hour or so after the service had started. And worship had been going on and on and on. And they were just waiting for Evan Roberts and his team to show up. And he would just humbly walk into the service and the whole atmosphere would change and everything. People would begin to run to the altar and people would fall out of their seats under conviction. People would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
And so it was awesome, awesome. This is, this is what's happening, shaking whales. This is what the Western Mail recorded at the bottom of page 3. A remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Lahore. How do you say that in Wales? Welsh. Some excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is, stayed is stated has been lined with people from end to end. Shopkeepers are clo- closed early in order to get a place in the chapel, and tin and steel workers throng the place in working clothes. The most, ec- the most extraordinary thing about the meetings which I attended was the extent to which they were absolutely without any human direction or leadership. We must obey the Spirit is the watchword of Evan Roberts, and he is as obedient as the humblest of his followers. You can watch what they call the influence of the power of the Spirit playing over the crowded congregation as an eddying wind plays over the surface of a pond. 1905, there was some debate over the revival, caused some division. Roberts kind of secludes himself into, uh, into the background, which basically... At that point, Evan Roberts had traveled and done so much in just a short amount of time that he had, he had worn himself out physically, emotionally. He was worn out. And so instead of pacing himself, he wore himself out and then kind of secluded into the background and, uh, and stayed there. <laughs> he wrote um, a book. He did some different things. But, but this, is, uh, this is some of the other quotes about Evan Roberts here closing out. In your notes, although public sympathy lay with Robert, such criticisms, coupled with months of activity with very little sleep, began to take their toll, and he removed himself from public ministry for the rest and renewal for a total of seven days beginning February 22nd at Neath. This time of silence was a shock to the entire world, but Roberts was very, very wisely did not succumb to the pressure to continue his work unabated. Afterwards, he continued his exhausting schedule for a little over a year, then in 1906, Jesse Penn Lewis and her husband convinced him to come in. Basically, they bring him into his house, they, and they block him from getting any appointments with people, basically. And they seclude him and shelter him so that he can rest. David Matthews said of the Welsh Revival, list of criminal convictions dwindled to nothing. Judges had, instead of the usual long list of cases awaiting trial, blank sheets of paper without a single name. J.B. Jones, writing of the after-effects of the revival, said in 1930, the atmosphere of revival still lingered in Wales. It's awesome. So all this is going on. All this is happening in Wales. And then in North America, you have Welsh, Welsh, you have Welsh (laughs) uh, folks coming into the country. They're settling here, and they get word of what's happening in Wales, and, and they start to experience uh, in their communities, what was taking place in Wales, word, word spreads. People start going to Wales to meet Evan Roberts. They go there. Ministers go there to meet him. They go there to see what God is doing in Wales, and they come back and start sharing what's happening. We see some of that in Los Angeles, where Azusa Street happens. So F.B. Meyer, others went uh, to, to take a look at what was happening and experience it and came back. One important person will come to. Uh, it affected their church significantly. And so that's what's taking place. So now in North America, you have all these bubblings. You have people hearing about whales. 
People are coming over, they're getting involved, and, and all of this stuff's happening. God is setting the stage for the Pentecostal revival. God is setting the stage for Azusa Street. So what, what is the Pentecost revival? Well, it's what we refer to as Azusa Street. It has its background, as we said, in the holiness movement. A lot of the people that became leaders in the Pentecostal movement were affected by the holiness movement. And so in April 1906, that History, the date in history that marked us, marked history, is when everything began. So let's take a look at William Seymour. We all are probably familiar with Seymour. We all know that Seymour kind of became the leader of the Azusa Street Revival. So let's talk about his background a little bit and who he is. So Seymour was an African-American holiness preacher. He grew up in St. Mary's Parish in, in Louisiana he was blind. He became blind eventually in one eye because of a smallpox infection. Actually, he wrestled with that smallpox infection in Cincinnati, Ohio. We'll talk about that momentarily. And so he, he was blind because of that. And he grew up in, in slave, post-slave world. It was Reconstruction. It was Civil War Reconstruction. His dad fought in the Civil War, became ill. Family fought for the benefits for... Uh, Civil War soldiers uh, to try to pay for things. It was a big battle trying to get uh, an African-American the help that he needed at that point, plus the Reconstruction. It was a lot of, lot of history there. And so in 1895, uh, Seymour leaves Louisiana, and he begins to travel. He begins to travel. And he goes to Indianapolis in 1895. He comes to Cincinnati in 1900 and ends up in Houston in 1905. When he goes to Cincinnati, I'll highlight Cincinnati because we're Ohio and just give you the history of Seymour here in Ohio. So Cincinnati's how far from us? 250 miles, okay? So, um, so that's where he was. And when he got to Cincinnati, the, the thought is that he came to Cincinnati to go to Bible College at, at Knapp's Bible College. Knapp was a Methodist minister who was known for incorporating African Americans into his Bible College. He actually ended up, many say that he had to close down his Bible College because of the pressure he received for being all-inclusive. And so Seymour went there for Bible College. And as he gets to Cincinnati, he comes in contact with a man by the name of David Warner, or excuse me, Daniel Warner. And Daniel Warner was basically the guy that founded the Church of God, founded in, Indi in Indiana. And so he's the, he's the holiness, uh, he has a holiness background. They don't believe in praying in tongues. And this is him on the screen. And so this guy had a ministry called Evening Light Saints. The Evening Light was was the term he used for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit saints, or evening light saints. Um, he founded the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana. There was, he had some uh, beliefs about creeds, doctrines, and things, so he kind of separated. There's a, there's a whole history with Warner. Great little study, again, on someone else if you want to do that. Seymour was a waiter in Cincinnati, and he attended this Bible school with Martin Knapp. In 1901... Like we said earlier, Knapp had to resign. He was getting a lot of pressure about his all-inclusive Bible school. And in 1902, so remember, Seymour's attending his Bible college. 1901, his Bible college closes. In 1902, he comes down with smallpox. And he begins to wrestle. This disease could have killed him. He wrestled through it. God healed him. 
you know, whatever, whatever the case might be. But he had a, he had a quite, uh, quite the encounter with God and had to make a decision with what God had called him to do. And so 1902, he becomes ordained. After he loses sight in one of his eyes, he becomes ordained through Evening Light Ministries. It was basically, it's not the process it was not the process then that it is today. Basically, they called him forward and said, are you going to preach the gospel? Are you born again? Amen. Okay, you're going to go out and preach the gospel. And that was his ordination. <laughs> so they sent him out, and he traveled for three years. He traveled as an evangelist. Um, so this is the background of Seymour. So he's traveling as an evangelist during this time. We're not quite sure where all he went. We do know that he went to see uh, John G. Lake in Chicago. Lake was with Dowie at that point. And so we know that he had a conversation with Lake. How many of you know who John G. Lake is? Okay, if not, you need to go study him. He's a great healing evangelist of the turn of the century. He's the guy that if you've heard us talk about, they put germs in the palm of his hand under a microscope, put diseases in the palm of his hand and watch them shrivel up under a microscope. I mean, this guy turned Africa, South Africa upside down. I mean, this guy, you need to go study John Lake. <laughs> anyway, uh, he started the healing rooms. He was, or was accredited for the healing room, John Lake Healing Room Ministry. <clears throat> anyway, so he goes and he talks to Lake he, and he begins to share with John G. Lake about how he's praying five hours a day and, and God, he's just hungry for God. He's hungry for a move of God. He wants God to move, and he's praying. And during this time frame, actually, where he was telling Lake he was, or he was praying, he was preaching meetings uh, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. We do know that. Um, so in the middle of all of this, he also goes to Jackson, Mississippi, and he goes to visit a guy by the name of Charles Mason. Not Charles Manson, but Charles Mason. <laughs> and... Uh, a guy by the name of Charles Price Jones. Now, Charles Mason, not Manson, Charles Mason uh, was an interesting character. Um, if you go and you study him, basically he shows up, he was known for, for hearing from the Lord from inanimate objects. And so <laughs> I'm not saying this is scriptural or you should do this, but uh, he showed up at the first general council of the Assemblies of God to speak and he brought a potato along with him and set the potato up at the pulpit and uh, heard from the Lord via the potato. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't recommend that. And uh, so you got Mason and Jones. Both were friends. Both, so it's possible that he saw both of them. Some historians say he only saw one or the other. They were friends. It's very possible he saw both of them. Eventually, Jones and Masons parted because of the doctrine of praying in tongues. Jones didn't believe in praying in tongues. And so, again, the reason I'm telling you all this is so you can understand these folks that Seymour is surrounded by. These are the people that are influential in Seymour's life. He's got the holiness guys. He's got the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana guy, the Evening Lights guy. He's got the Methodist guy. You know. And then, in the middle of all of this, he goes to Houston. Now, we're not quite sure why he goes to Houston in 1905. Many historians believe that his family moved from Louisiana to Houston, and that's why he went very well possible. So he goes in 1905, and he begins to uh, get connected there. And what happens is he runs into, I'm going to skip on, on your notes if you want to follow along with me. I'm going to skip Bonnie Bray prayer meeting, and I'm going to jump over to page 8, where it says events preceding the revival. 
So William Seymour goes in 1905 to uh, Houston, and he runs into uh, this, this lady by the name of Lucy Farrow, who is a significant person in the timeline of history when it comes to Azusa Street. Lucy Farrow was uh, someone that had been involved in Charles Parham's ministry. Now, how many of you, jumping back a couple weeks ago, remember the name Charles Parham? We talked about Charles Parham. Who was Charles Parham? Charles Parham was the guy at the turn of the century. He had been connected with all of these different holiness folks. There's his picture. He's been connected with all these different holiness people and, and others. And he goes back to his Bible college that he started in Topeka, Kansas in 1901. He goes back and he says to them, it was actually the end of 1900, I want you to study while I'm away what is the initial evidence, what is the proof of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The reason he asked them to do that was because up until this point, the general consensus was the proof or the evidence was a sanctified life. It was sinless perfection. It was, the, it was the Methodist teaching of sinless perfection that came from Wesley. That was what was being taught is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so he asked his students, go figure it out. At a watch night service, December 31st, 1900, 1901 rolls around, January 1st, and the lady by the name of Agnes Osmond gets baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues after Parham lays hands on her. And so that began this new discovery of speaking in tongues associated with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. People were doing it. It just was not, it was not widely accepted. It's just like today. <laughs> People are doing it. It's just not very widely accepted these days. And so Lucy Farrow, jumping back to 1905, Lucy Farrow was a Bible college student at Parham's Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. She got baptized in the Holy Spirit under Parham's ministry, and she became basically their nanny. Anytime Parham was traveling, she went with them and was their nanny and took care of Parham's kids. Well, she's now in 1905 in Houston, uh, Texas, running a mission, and in comes, you guessed it, William Seymour. And so she introduces him when Parham moves to Houston. She introduces William Seymour to Charles Parham. Very, it, was a, it was a date in history, right? And so that's where Seymour begins to be exposed to the teaching of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the speaking in tongues. And so he goes to Parham's. There's William Seymour. He goes to Parham's. Bible school in Houston. And there he begins to receive the teaching and the understanding of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Some of the other key players prior to the Azusa Street Revival, I mentioned Myers earlier. He had gone to Welsh Revival and came back. Um, Joseph Smalley, let's talk about this guy. This is someone you should know. He pastored First Baptist Church in Los Angeles. He went to Wales. He comes back. He's teaching about the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Revival breaks out in his church. And what does the Baptist people do? He can't be doing that. They excommunicated him. And so he starts another church called New Testament Church. And in this church, he has a very significant person that starts attending his church. Her name is Jeannie Evans Moore. Jeannie Evans Moore becomes 
the wife of William Seymour. So we'll see how those folks interconnect here shortly. But then you have Frank Bartleman, who is a part of all this. Julia Hutchins, she was the pastor of Second Baptist Church. So you had First Baptist Church having issues, and now you got Julia Hutchins, who was having issues. She, she starts embracing the holiness teaching. She starts promoting the holiness teaching, and the Second Baptist Church folks said, you can't be doing that. And so they kicked her out, and she started a, an African-American holiness mission. But she needed a place to meet. So where does, where does Julia Hutchins end up? She ends up at a home by the host, with the host of Ruth Asbury, the Asbury family, on Bonnie Bray. So the stage is set. She's got her mission. They're meeting at, uh, at the house on Bonnie Bray with Richard and Ruth Asbury. All of this is going on. You got Lucy, that's the Bonnie Bray house. You've got Lucy Farrell, who's uh, doing her mission and her work in Houston. You've got Seymour now in Houston. He is in Parham's Bible School. By the way, Lucy Farrell is said to be uh, related to Frederick Douglass, who is the abolitionist guy. So there's a lot of connection there. And in comes Neely Terry. Neely Terry was a part of Hutchins' church. Her mission. She comes to Houston to do some work with Lucy Farrow's ministry. She meets Farrow. She meets Seymour. She goes to Bible college with Parham as a guest. She gets baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. This lady from the, again, she's from the holiness movement. She's at Hutchins' church. She's in a holiness church. They don't believe in praying in tongues. She gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues at Parham's meetings and Bible school. She meets Seymour. She develops a relationship with Seymour, and she goes back to Los Angeles. In, I believe, around February of March or 1906, Julia Hutchins has a dilemma. She needs an associate pastor, and so she turns to Neely Terry and says, Hey, I need an associate pastor. Who does Neely Terry recommend? William Seymour. And so Seymour gets on a train and heads out to Los Angeles and he shows up at Hutchins' mission. Well, by this time, Hutchins' mission has moved out of the Asbury's home. They're in their own little storefront. And Seymour shows up to preach. And what does he preach? He preaches Acts chapter 2. The baptism and the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Interesting though, William Seymour has not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. <laughs> he believes it. He believes it to be true. He has seen it happen to folks, but he's not experienced it himself he is somewhere along the lines, has shifted his theology from the holiness movement to the evidence of speaking in tongues, but he's not experienced it, but he shows up and that's what he preaches. That afternoon, a janitor at one of the local banks by the name of Edward Lee, who was in Hutchins' mission, says, hey, why don't you come over to our house this afternoon? And basically was doing it as a favor out of just good Christian brotherhood history says that he really didn't want to, but he did it anyway. And so he has Seymour come over to his house and they spend the afternoon talking, have a great afternoon. They eat lunch and they all go back to church that night, right, to the Hutchins mission. Well, when they get there, the door is padlocked and nobody's having church. Hutchins had a problem with Seymour's message. She said, I'm a holiness preacher. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit with entire sanctification, what we call sinless perfection. I don't believe in this. You're not preaching in my church. And she kicked him out and kicked everybody else out who followed him. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 
Seymour, Seymour just went across the country to, to, to Los Angeles to minister, and now he's there, and he says he feels like God tell, is telling him to stay and to continue his work there. So he continues to have meetings in Edward Lee's home, and people start coming to Edward Lee's home to have, to have these, hear Seymour teach. Lee said that Seymour would lock himself in the basement and pray all day, and then he would come up and teach at night. <laughs> and people would flock to the house to hear Seymour teach on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That was, that was Seymour's message. He didn't preach anything. <laughs> you got baptism, baptize, baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what Seymour was teaching. And so the house fills up. The Lees did not live in an as affluent home. Remember, he was just a janitor, so they didn't have an affluent home like the Asbury's did. It was a smaller home, so they filled the home up pretty quick. So they needed to move to a new place. So what did the Lees do? They got on the phone with their friends, the Asbury's, who lived on Bonnie Bray Street, who had a bigger home, and said, hey, can we move the meeting to your house? So Seymour and all of them move over to Bonnie Bray Street. Seymour, in the process of all of this, calls his friends Lucy Farrow and and says, hey, Lucy, we need help. Send Charles Parham up here. I need help. Send Parham up here. Parham refuses to go to Los Angeles. Actually, there's a great divide. Parham eventually comes to Los Angeles after, after Azusa Street starts. He comes, and there's division between him and Seymour, and he tries to start a church across town teaching his own doctrine and his own, th- his own thing, and it dissolves. It doesn't go anywhere. So Parham, Parham actually kind of gets as time goes on, gets a, uh, you know, labeled as a black sheep almost in history. Um, but he's, he still was very influential at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, and it's worth knowing. Um, so Seymour and all of them are now at Ruth Asbury's home, 214 Bonnie Bray Street. They're meeting. We're not real sure exactly what order or how it happened, Edward Lee wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, so he says to William Seymour, hey, lay hands on me so I can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some historians say that Seymour laid hands on him and he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Other historians say that it was Lucy Farrell. Regardless, someone laid hands on Edward Lee and he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The one historian says that uh, the ones that say that... um, that Seymour laid hands on him, said that he laid hands on him, and Edward Lee fell under the power of God, and, but he didn't get baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was later that Lucy Pharaoh laid hands on him, and he received. Regardless, however, however it happened, whatever order that it happened in, whoever did what, on April 9th, it was a Monday night, whatever happened, wherever it happened, He got hands laid on him on April 9th, 1906, and he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. When they show up at Bonnie Bray Street, William Seymour takes time for testimonies, and he says, Edward Lee, why don't you tell everybody what happened to you? And so Edward Lee gets up, and he starts to testify about how he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as he's testifying, he lifts his hands, and he starts praying in tongues. And when he does... History says that the power of God hit that home so much that Jeannie Evans Moore, who was sitting at the piano, and everybody in the room fell out of their seats onto the floor, hit their knees, hit their faces under the power of God when he started doing that. Little eight-year-old boy received the baptism in the Holy Spirit first and began to pray in tongues. Jeannie Evans Moore began to pray in tongues, and then the whole room just began to erupt. 
And then they began to move outside onto the porch. You see it there in that picture. They had moved from the inside. There was such a commotion that they moved outside, and there was a piano. Jeannie Evans Moore, who had never played the piano, started playing the piano perfectly and began to sing in tongues like an angel. Couldn't sing, but she could sing when she prayed, when she sang in the Spirit. Some said she was singing in Hebrew, but she began to sing in tongues and play the piano, and others began to worship. And it was just spontaneous worship in tongues and created such a commotion that all the neighbors started coming to see what was happening. And so this took place for multiple days until that porch, you see, gave way, and they realized we got to change locations. <laughs> History says that the power of God was flowing so strong in that area that people, as they were walking up to get to the home, would fall out under the power of God, just trying to walk outside of the home because the presence of God was so strong. People would walk up to the home just coming to check out what was happening, didn't even believe in praying in tongues, and would get baptized in the Holy Spirit just standing there or get healed just standing there. And so William Seymour has to find a new location, so they move to Azusa Street. William Seymour got baptized, some say, on April 12th. On Easter Sunday, April 15th, Jeannie Evans Moore, remember, New Testament church? She says, hey, I want to take you all to my church and tell them what's happening. So she takes everybody to her church on Easter Sunday, and Joseph Smalley takes time for testimonies, and Jeannie Evans Moore stands up and she starts to share her testimony about how she got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when she does, she gives a message in tongues. And Ruth Asbury, who's there with her, gives the interpretation. And the whole place lights up <laughs> at New Testament Church. That's Azusa Street on the screen. And uh, it, was a rundown method, it was a rundown building. It used to be a Methodist church. And so Bartleman was there. Many people were there. And they began to flock as a result of that Sunday morning at New Testament Church on Easter Sunday, what started on April 9th began to bubble, 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 bubble. <laughs> People began to find out about it. Now, now the church world is exposed to it, and they're all flocking to Bonnie Bray Street. You want to jump back to Bonnie Bray if you can? So they're, they're all flocking to Bonnie Bray Street to be a part of what's happening and what's going on. Azusa Street will get there. There's a lot that's going on with Azusa Street. If you'll remember, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up with this thought. A couple weeks ago in, on a Sunday morning, I talked about this woman by the name of Ivy Campbell. Ivy Campbell was from Ohio, and uh, she, she had helped start a mission here in Ohio. We'll talk about her more next week. But she had moved out to Los Angeles and she was there in Los Angeles at the time of Azusa Street. She was attending an apostolic church. And uh, she heard about Azusa Street, what was happening. She goes to Azusa Street, gets baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. She's so excited about it. Remember, April 9th, 1906, she gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, comes back to Ohio in November, the end of November, 1906. And in December, she's back here in Akron, preaching for C.A. McKinney at the, at the CMA church, which is still, it's, it's still here today. It's different, but it, was south, it used to be South Street Mission at C.A. McKinney. C.A. McKinney was the pastor. 
He has her come share. It was supposed to be for five days. went for five weeks. And out of those meetings here in Akron, history says, out of, from South Street on Akron, history says that Akron was, the, was like Azusa Street. And it was the Azusa Street of the Northeast, and it began to spread all across the Northeast out of Akron. And as a result, there was a man there by the name of Lud, uh, Ludwig, I believe is his name. Am I saying that right? Or Lu- Lupton, Lupton, sorry, Levi Lupton, who we'll talk more about in the future as well. Levi Lupton ends up getting baptized in the Holy Spirit at Ivy Campbell's meetings, starts the apostolic mission in, here in Ohio, just right down the road, and it begins to affect the country. So more to come, but, uh, but we'll take a look at Azusa Street next week and Ivy Campbell and what happened locally as well as nationally. So there was a lot of things happening in Los Angeles, but there was a lot of things happening here locally as well. So, awesome. Well, thanks for coming. I hope that this is a blessing to you, that you're learning. Thank you for joining the Celebration Podcast. For more information, visit ccacron.org or call us at 330 762 7458. You can also download the Celebration app from iTunes or the Android store. With my father, it's so hard.